preach to us the Word of God. It's good to be back. I love you all, Sheridan Hills. Thank you, Pastor Andrew, for giving me the opportunity to speak. It's always such a pleasure being with you all. I truly do miss being here. Let me give you a quick seminary update about where I'm at, because many of you all are going to ask me lovingly. I, uh, I've completed all of my classes, and now the last thing that I am doing is an internship. And part of this internship is I get to spend some time with someone named Dr. Schreiner. For me, it's Tom Schreiner, and he's one of the pastors at the church. He's the pastor I get to spend time with during this internship. And Tom Schreiner is not only a scholar who knows the Word of God very well, but he's an example of what Pastor Andrew was just speaking of, someone who has gotten to know the Lord and His Word so well, and it shows in his life and in his love for the church as a pastor and for others. So I bring him up because I want you, as you're beginning to turn to Romans 8, verse 18, you could start turning there now, I want you to hear a little bit about the context of the passage that we're about to study. And this is from his commentary. He's written one of the best commentaries on the book of Romans. And he writes this as to why the book of Romans was written. He says, Division existed between Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome, which explains why Paul focuses on the guilt of both Gentiles and Jews, all are guilty of sin, the role that the law plays, the law plays in God's purposes, the place of Israel in God's plan, I hope you're filling those in, and the matter of clean and unclean foods. These are some of the controversy just a few of the points that existed during that time that may have been strong reasons that Paul was writing. But notice this, Paul wanted to unify both Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome under his gospel. By embracing his gospel together, the Roman churches would serve as a launching pad for the proposed Pauline mission in Spain. So, 2020 has been a tough year, a year of great division. We need the same thing today that was needed in the 50s AD. We need the gospel. This is the deepest and truest thing that can bring unity to us. So that's what Paul did, and that's what we should also unite in. This letter was written around 55 to 58 AD. To the Roman church, an emperor Nero, he is an emperor who was very brutal towards Christians, was the ruler, and persecution was both social and physical. So, let's read this passage. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption 
and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So I want you guys to see some pictures of Cuba. In the 1950s, Cuba looked a lot like America, the United States, in the 1950s. There's a lot of similarities. In 1954, Havana had the largest number of Cadillacs per capita in any city in the world. In 1958, Cuba was the second country in the world to broadcast television in color. In 1958, Cuba was the first country in Latin America and the third country in the world with the most cars per capita, one for every 38 inhabitants. People wanted to immigrate to Cuba, to live there, to have their lives there, not escape from Cuba, Despite the dramatic immigration curbs that they set in place in the 1930s, when European immigrants almost matched the number of natural-born Cubans, during the entire decade of the 1950s, Cuba was second in Latin America in the number of immigrants per capita. The reality is, today, Cuba is not that way. Communist ideas have destroyed the country, did not continue to prosper, had a revolution that led to its degradation that continues today. However, we may compare 1950s Cuba to 1950s United States. There are some similarities that are comparable there. Yet our text this afternoon brings up two incomparable points. Things. Verse 18, this is our main verse, says, Suffering in this present time is not worth comparing to the future glory that is to be revealed to us. And that's the main idea. The rest of this text that you're going to see, verses 19 through 30, will explain that main idea of suffering in this present time being incomparable to the future glory that we are going to receive. We'll see this in four points. The curse, our hope, the spirit, and the plan. Paul wants to remind us of these four subjects. 
And the reason he reminds us of that is he wants us to see how much that future glory is going to be incomparable to this present suffering. And so he reminds us of those four points. He reminds us of the curse, reminds us of the hope, he reminds us of the spirit, and he reminds us of the plan. So first, let's look at the curse, explained in verses 19 through 23. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." So what is this curse that the Bible speaks about? Well, that's the result of our sin. It's what we have done. It's our disobedience. Sin has caused all the problems of 2020 going back all the way to the first birth. Yeah, Paul speaks about it in that way. He uses this language of labor pains, bringing up this reminder of the curse that is mentioned in Roman, sorry, in Genesis 3. This is what has come to us as a part of our sin, as a punishment for our sin. The Bible mentions these labor pains because it's a good example of one of the worst pains that is experienced on earth. While waiting for something, while waiting for something new, for a new life. Well, who has been affected by this curse? All of creation. Creation has been subjected to this destructive and corruptive nature. It's brutal, the way nature treats one another. Sin has brought this. The physical world, though beautiful, though majestic, is constantly ravaged by floods, tsunamis, tornadoes, fires, hurricanes, earthquakes, drought. In Florida, we get used to this. Your tree, big thick, immovable tree might just get lifted and thrown into your neighbor's yard. It's just what we're used to here. And everyone seems to have a nature story. Every generation has that story of when nature was the worst. Oh, that winter got so cold, the deer froze standing straight up. And Grandpa talks about it. Oh, that hurricane of 92 destroyed everything. There's nothing left. Oh, the volcano of 1980, the ash went all the way to Florida. These things, we've experienced them. But what else has been affected by the curse? Not only creation, but we ourselves have been affected. You could look at this war between humanity, cancer, gossip, heart disease. Some of these are personal to us today. Child abuse, diabetes, slavery, lust, the list can go on and on. We've experienced this curse. We don't have to argue against this. And unfortunately, we can all attest to it and its effect on our lives. It also divides us as humans. We know that today. We know that this year. And here's one way that 
is sometimes often forgotten that we're divided as humans. Look at age. It can be this curtain that veils us from loving one another properly. Elderly folks, you all have been separated during this pandemic perhaps more than most, perhaps felt forgotten. And that is because of this physical curse that's affected us and divides us to where we seem to not relate with one another just because of years gone by. And admittedly, millennials and younger folks are probably most at fault for this, for not relating with you all. But this is a part of the curse that we can look forward to with the redemption of bodies that will no longer be. That division that the curse has brought, even physically to our generations, will no longer be. It's a pretty amazing thought that one day, the hidden nature of your personality, elderly folks, that has been hidden by age, that we do not appreciate, of all the experience and wisdom that you have, will no longer be veiled. If you are in Christ, these promises are for you. It's important to note that the curse didn't occur by accident. It wasn't outside of the control of God. We often can short-sightedly just think, oh, the child has a cold because he got a virus from school. Cause and effect. However, the punishment of the curse occurred because God subjected creation and mankind to this. This is how bad our sin is. This is what our sin has done. So the curse was due to man, but it affects all around us, including creation. And the freedom for that creation, that beautiful creation that we love but we know is broken, that bondage to corruption will be broken with the revealing of the sons of God. It's connected to us as humanity being redeemed. So the curse on creation will end when mankind is redeemed. This is what the text is explaining. And if you're suffering this afternoon, you probably feel this more than just when you look outside. Maybe you have a right sense of this world being broken. doesn't matter how old you are. Maybe you know this intrinsically because it comes to us in a very obvious way. Let me remind you, this is because we know this isn't how life is supposed to be. This isn't the thriving that we're meant to have. And this is what the curse has done. Do you groan, as the text says, with creation wanting things to be restored and made right? Do you have that in you? Do you know that this is not right? One of the most common questions that is often asked, that I've been asked personally, is if God is real, how can he allow evil, pain, or suffering? And by the way, the main point of this sermon really does address this. And if you continue on reading from Romans 8, it does answer that question. But oftentimes that question of why does God allow evil, pain, and suffering, oftentimes it's in an accusatory fashion or it's used to cause doubt in your heart about if God is real. And if you're struggling with this and you're a Christian, let me remind you that this question should instead it should remind you of how true Christianity is and how real God is. You see, this is often from a perspective of atheism, which has no bearings on right and wrong and words like evil or morality 
And when it's brought to us, asking how or why does evil exist if God is real, we should be encouraged because that is a theological claim, the very existence that they're assuming about evil. What I mean by this is atheism can only call things good or bad in a relative sense. In an individual sense, can that person say this is bad towards me? But there's no objective standard by which they can claim it is ultimately or absolutely good or evil. So here is a test that we should have as Christians that I want you to have. When someone who doesn't believe in God uses any of our moral terms and borrows from our worldview to say something like this is good or bad, this is unfair, we should have this. Words like ought and should. You should ask, who says? Who says? When they say Hitler is evil or bad or his ideas were wrong, who says? It is true that he is evil. It's true that what he did was wrong, but who says? We are the ones who have that category of evil. They do not. We understand this curse and have a category for it, for this broken world. So why does Paul bring up this curse? In one sense, we've all experienced it. It doesn't matter who you are. We see it around us and we feel it. It's a universal experience. You can fill that in. You can't deny it. This world is broken. But in another sense, Christians have a deeper sense of this. It is a Christian experience. For those non-Christians with us today who are here or listening online, who love the world, and I don't mean that in the sense that you love people and want to care for them. What I mean by that is that, you have a, that you're satisfied with this world as a broken world. You love the stuff this place has to offer, the happiness and enjoyment that is promised. You seek the praise from mankind as your hope for eternal legacy. For those non-Christians who seek the peace and rest that is promised here, connected to this present reality. The Bible speaks clearly in 1 John 2.15. It says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, then the Bible says that you have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's what our text is saying. And look at it here in verse 23. Look at verse 23. But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We Christians have the first fruits of the Spirit, and part of that includes this hope, this longing, groaning, waiting expectation of our lives as adopted sons of God with the redemption of our bodies. That's happened in us. We have been changed to a state that feels the curse more so. Not because it hurts us more, but because we're aware of its source. We know that it isn't the way it's always going to be, and it changes our perspective on it. So we groan inwardly, waiting for it to end in a way that others cannot. We've also tasted and seen, as Psalm 34 states, We've tasted and seen it in small realities, as if a trailer or a preview, we know The Christian life, God reveals to us what heaven is going to be like in little bits. 
here in the church, in our community, in the unity we find in the gospel, we start to experience this. And so we know all the more, this is how it ought to be. Not like when it's broken and falling apart. Christians have that. We have that waiting in that sense. But the non-Christian doesn't know and see the way we do. They're blind. And that brings us to our second point, the hope. Paul reminds us of the hope to help us see the future glory as incomparable to the present suffering that we experience now. Verse 24 through 25 reads, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We, being Christians, have been saved into this hope. The Bible talks about salvation in three different ways. There's a past, a present, and a future reality of our salvation. And this verse is emphasizing that we're saved in a real sense, but an incomplete aspect that we're longing and waiting for that will be complete. So yes, if you are a Christian, you're safe. You're saved. You've been justified. But that also means that you're inside of this capsule that we're going to phrase as hope that's longing and looking forward to a final destination. This isn't all there is, and that's great news for us. That is why the word is hope. It emphasizes that we look forward to something we cannot currently see. Verse 23 was emphasizing the Spirit has caused these first fruits, which include longing for the day when we can be with God as His sons in our new bodies. That's the hope we're saved into. Christians are given promises that help us to live differently in the world. Look at verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. We're inside of this new hope and it changes how we live. So when racial relations are messy, when a virus threatens life, when families begin to divide, when persecution is growing, our bodies begin to fail us, cannot see it, we know paradise is not far off for us, Christians. We can wait with endurance patiently and persevere because of this. We know, yes, life is difficult, but it can't even compare to the future glory that we await as His children. And all of these things cursed in ourselves from sinfulness to the breakdown of our bodies, will be made new and so much greater that when that day comes, we're going to lose sight of today's trials and problems. I think in our text, Paul is building on the analogy that Jesus explains in Matthew 16, 21. Jesus says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. What a great example. So also, you, Jesus says, have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. That's what it's going to be like. Do you want to not have that baby now that you've had it? No, no it was, the pain was too much. You'll never hear such a thing. The pain isn't even in the mind. What a glorious thing to give birth. 
And that is the hope that we're saved into as we look forward to future glory. So third, the Spirit. Paul reminds us of the Spirit to help us see the future glory as incomparable to the present suffering. Before we read this part, I want to mention a bit about Bible translation. Some non-Christians will make the claim that the Bible has been passed down like a game of telephone by a translation being translated like Google Translate when you do that thing where you translate it a bunch and then you're like, whoa, we lost the meaning of that, didn't we? They'll make that claim that the Bible is that way. Or we have so many translations that you can't really know what God says. But once again, these claims should encourage you. You see, rather than the Bible being a long game of telephone that keeps changing, it continues to be translated to conform with our modern way of speaking. As language changes, which it does every single year, and takes on new meaning, the translations we have fight against that. We go back to the original languages and draw from there to communicate the meaning for us in our languages. It doesn't get lost. The amount of work that goes into it is amazing. Matter of fact, for example, the ESV that's sitting right in front of you, that red pew Bible there, this translation was overseen by 15, a 15-member 15 translation oversight committee. Another team of more than 50 translation review scholars, and these are really smart scholars. And another team of over 50 on an advisory council. And all of these scholars who know Greek and Hebrew, the original languages, extremely well then work together to accurately translate the Bible that's sitting right there in front of you, the words that we're reading this morning in the ESV. However, and here's the point of bringing that up, with God, communication is perfected. And what that means is in our prayers, the Holy Spirit is at work. Both the will and the communication beyond words is perfectly understood and transferred. Look at verse 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts, God, he knows what is the mind of the Spirit, the one interceding for us, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. These verses are a great encouragement that we shouldn't miss out on. Paul is bringing it up for a reason in the midst of reminding us of the curse and the suffering and the trials. He wants to emphasize this. It should cause you to pray more. 2021 should be a year in which we pray more knowing this truth. Knowing the suffering, knowing the curse and how real it is, knowing how much it can divide, here, truth will be communicated perfectly. These verses are an encouragement. This passage is meant to be an encouragement for us to pray when we're weak. Our prayers aren't always perfect. We can all admit this. We may pray for things that aren't God's will. Sometimes we may not have the proper words to communicate clearly what we need. And with the previous chapter, and earlier in the context of this same chapter, Paul spoke of two things which can cause us weakness. First, our difficulty with sin and the temptation to live by the flesh. 
And second, the effects of the curse on creation itself physically on us. Spirit doesn't merely move our hearts to a state of hope. He also provides the means when it seems we do not even have the strength or mind to pray. For when it seems we're unable to communicate perfectly what we need from holy, holy, holy God as we've been singing about, at times can feel separate and distance. God prays for us. This is great. Though we communicate to God imperfectly, we have help to the extent that our prayers may seem uncommunicable in our own ears. Our prayers are understood by God. And this is not saying that we make noises without meaning. Let me be clear on that. This means that with the complexity of the curse affecting our lives, our minds, the noetic effects, we may struggle to rightly express the proper words. However, we find that as perfect as the communication and will is within the Trinity, our prayers are made known to God in our need. God who knows our hearts also knows the mind of the Spirit. Therefore, when the Spirit intercedes for us, there's no loss of communication. There may be moments of despair when temptation is too great for you, when you're about to sin. And in those split moments, it's difficult to pray as well as you've heard people pray at church. But be encouraged to do your best in prayer at those moments. The Lord is listening, and the communication will not be lost, even if you're not using perfect words that communicate all of the meaning in your heart. The same goes for those who may be suffering in physical pain. Be encouraged to pray. The Lord hears. Some of you all have lost loved ones in deathbeds. At the end of their lives, you don't know what is happening in their minds. Christians, pray. Pray till the end. Be encouraged that He hears even with the effects of the curse in our lives. This is our Trinitarian God at work in our lives. He can do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. So Paul reminds us of the Spirit. Because he wants us to see that this future glory with our Trinitarian God is going to be so much greater than what we're experiencing now. So last, the plan. Our final point, the plan. There's now been several hints to how much control God has in our lives and his sovereignty is being exposed in this text. First, it's God who subjected creation to futility. Yet it's also him who's going to bring it out and give it freedom to the sons of God who are revealed when he adopted them. Second, as we saw earlier, one of the first fruits of the Spirit, it's its effect in our lives as Christians who now groan eagerly, inwardly, longing for adoption. This is an act of God in us. The Spirit causes, you can write that, it causes Christians to groan inwardly and eagerly for adoption. That is the Lord's work in us. 
And third, God's sovereignty is shown in prayer as we were just speaking about. God is the one who intercedes for us in our prayers as a means of accomplishing the will that he has. The concept of God praying to God. God intercedes for us. He is in more control with more sovereignty than we may assume. So, if God is in control, then we have no need to fear that his plan will not be accomplished. Fill that in. If he's in control of these things, it's going to happen. Nothing's going to change that. That is good news. Don't let that cause you doubt. Verses 28 through 29 say, says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The temptation to question God and if he's in control will come. It comes strongest when you are suffering, when you're going through trials. Start to wonder if he's good or if he's in control. But as we've already noted, the main point of this text is to encourage us in our weakness, to view the suffering of this present time as incomparable to the future glory that is going to be revealed. Therefore, Paul reminds us that God's control means that all things will be good and according to his purpose. All things, even being those things we least expect, like trials and temptations, and suffering, and problems. Matter of fact, the text presents that these difficulties and trials are in our future. It's promised to us throughout the Bible. For the conforming to the image of his Son, look at verse 29, includes suffering like him. And then look at verse 17, which isn't a part of our passage. It's the verse right before it. It says, fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So do not be surprised when the fiery trials come. We've been warned, and it's implied, it's an expectation that the church is to live with. God has predestined our trials, and they have a purpose in making us look more like Jesus. The text implies that difficulties and trials are promised for the Christian. You can fill that in, promised. So when does this end? When will this present suffering end? Well, it doesn't end until the Lord returns or we die. In fact, we will not be fully conformed into his likeness until we receive our new bodies. For we will resurrect like he has. And when this day of our resurrection comes, the revelation as sons of God comes, Jesus, who is our hope, will be the first or the supreme one amongst us. That's a promise for us. We, as Christians, will resurrect. And you see, Jesus being the firstborn has already done this. He also lived the perfect life in our place. He did what we could not do. He suffered for us Innocently, he never sinned. He dies on the cross as our representative and resurrects. Jesus has done these things. And all who place their trust in him. It's literally this simple. Do you want to be a Christian? Do you want this future glory? Put your trust 
in Jesus Christ. You are a sinner. You need forgiveness. Trust in the sacrifice that he did, his work on the cross. That's what it means to be a Christian. He's done this. So, yes, we will suffer to some extent, as he did. But don't interpret this message at all, although it's encouraging, to say anything about the erroneous teaching of health and wealth. Christian life is not meant to be one of that. We're going to suffer as we're conformed to his image. We need to have that expectation. And this is actually a normal part of the journey of being one of God's children. If we look at the Bible, we look at the Old Testament, and just look at the numbers. I'm just going to list some of the enemies and oppressors of God's people. The Egyptians, the Amalekites, the Edomites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Syrians, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Midianites, the Philistines, the Syrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans. And yet, miraculously, God has preserved his people. He's preserved the faith in this good news, the gospel message of trusting in him. Through all of that. And then, Jesus the leader of Christianity, our God, dies on a cross. The leader of Christianity suffers, and Christianity spreads like wildfire. His plan accomplished. And who continues to share this message? Those who suffer persecution and die? His apostles, his disciples, with nothing to gain in this world. Only the future glory to look forward to. And that's what spread Christianity across the whole world? Dying martyrs with that message, with a leader who suffered on a cross? This is the sovereignty and the plan of God at work. Nothing will stop it. Not even governments trying to wipe out all of those who believe. Nothing's going to stop this. So yes, suffering is a part of the Christian life should be an expectation, but we will also be raised like him. That's going to be glorious. It's hard to even imagine that. We can wait eagerly and expectantly for that promise. For the plan that God has begun in us will not fail. Those whom he has foreknown have been predestined both to suffering and to final glory. Verse 30 closes our text saying, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I was recently speaking with a non-Christian friend at work. And he admitted to believing that everything happens for a reason. A lot of people believe this, even if they're not Christians, surprisingly. They believe, and he says to me, there seems to be a plan, unique events that occur as if there's a design. And if you're here today, or you're listening online, and you have a sense in which things do happen for a reason, maybe you were invited here by a Christian because you're in town with family, maybe your family brings you to church every week because they're your parents, maybe you're just a friend, and you have that sense that God has begun a work in your life, that he is calling you. Perhaps he's calling you this morning with the simple message of trusting in Jesus Christ and having the forgiveness of your sins. If you're sensing that he's doing that calling, don't have fear. 
This is what I mean by don't have fear. You might look around at all of these Christians around you, maybe those who you're watching this service with. Maybe the, the idea of a Christian life seems unobtainable. You think, I can never be like those Christians who wake up every morning and they go to church and they pray and they read their Bibles. And I mean, their lives are so clean and righteous. I can never be like that. This is the encouragement that this text is bringing. If God is calling you, he's going to finish that work. He's not going to leave you. You're not doing it on your own strength. The Christians in this room, the Christians who you know, who may have invited you and told you about Jesus, they're not holding it together on their own strength. Trust me, they would fail. It's God working in them who's causing them to live a life that has first fruits. So be encouraged. Maybe you don't even know how to pray. Be encouraged. The Lord knows. Ask Him to forgive you. Seek Him. If he's calling you, he can finish that work. That is how good and powerful he is. He's in control. So ask for these things. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He will bring you through the whole Christian life to the end to be with him in glory. That's good news for us Christians. Last note, the sufferings, verse 18 says, the sufferings are not comparable. However, I want to mention that the good things that we get to experience here will continue in greater ways. The plan ends on a new earth here. We're not just going to become foggy, ghostly figures somewhere in the clouds. It ends on a new earth. And that new earth will be better and greater. So the sufferings are not comparable, but there still will be some of those great things from earth with us in eternity. There's some good realities without any corruption that we have experienced here. So imagine the holidays that we've just experienced, the good parts of that, the community, the love, the fellowship, in all the right ways, minus those awkward, dividing political conversations you wish never would have happened. Imagine that, the unity that you felt at moments, the beautiful times spent around food and conversation and love. Imagine this song we've been singing at the end of this year, O come, O come, Emmanuel, coming true. O come, thou wisdom from on high, and order all things far and nigh. To us the path of knowledge show, and cause us in her ways to go. O come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrel cease. Fill the whole world with heaven's peace. What a great prayer. Part of eternity without sin, that glory that we're looking forward to with our resurrected bodies, is a community that no longer has quarrels and division. A community that has the wisdom of Christ. Christ being personified wisdom, lived it out perfectly. Imagine us with those hearts, you as individuals, with the wisdom to never enter into strife and quarrels, them ceasing. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's what we look forward to, a community in which all of us are united in one heart in mind in the gospel in Jesus. That's what we will look like. That's the likeness we'll be conformed to. So imagine the natural world with all of its beauties, without the brutal nature that 
comes with the animals and all of the stuff that we see in nature, the dangers, the fear of death and destruction. Imagine it with all of its beauty without those negative aspects. Here, imagine a king. Imagine a king or a grand political leader, that's what a king is, who will never fail you. Imagine this. Imagine that we had a king and there will never be one scandal that comes out. Not one text message that they sent in their youth that's going to come out and scandalize them and people will say, is that your king? It won't happen. He's sinless. You can trust that the king who knows you personally and has never failed, will never have a, a bad idea, will lead perfectly, righteously, fairly. He will reign fully and completely, and we will be his people. We'll have no shame. Man, that feels good to think about. Wow. So as we close, when speaking about Cuba, I think it's funny. People will hear my dad's story and how he got here from that country that's been destroyed by communism, how he was in prison, and he finally comes over and they say, Oh, Miguel. Are you ever going to go back? Will you ever go back and live there? Make your home there again? It sounds like there's a lot of things you love about it. There's such a beautiful culture. There's tasty foods. There's a beautiful landscape. The beaches, the fertile land. Isn't there something to go back and live there? Would you do that? No. It's kind of a funny question because the thought doesn't even enter our minds as a family. The thought about going back to Cuba's never been a part of my mindset. America's been so much greater if we compare it today to what it's become. It's incomparable, the prosperity and the freedom that we have. But that's still not the heavenly picture. Even America is not comparable with all of its problems to the future glory that we're going to have. But we're not even going to remember this stuff. In that sense of the present sufferings, we're going to lose sight of those things. So, even that example is imperfect. Because the future glory is going to be so incomparable to this present suffering. And this purpose ends so incomparably, gloriously, that God wants to share with us in his word some of these interworkings, some of this mystery that we see in prayer and in, his God, in God's plan and in his control. He shares those things for us as an encouragement to think of in the midst of this present suffering. These are not empty promises given to the youth with a false sense of a future happy long life before them given by lying politicians with hidden motives. That's not what the Bible's doing. These are not social experiments for testing out a different strategy in government and society. These are the promises of our Trinitarian God. He has utter control. He has a plan that will not fail. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows his people and he has a place for them and he grants them new redeemed bodies to live it out. There's not one element he hasn't thought of there's not one part that's going to fail to be glorious. So let me read this last verse as we close. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, 
he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these beautiful promises that you've given us. Lord, we thank you for reminding us that you are in control. Lord, we thank you for providing for us hope and also the means in our prayers to communicate with you. Thank you for listening to our prayers. Father, we ask that in our suffering, Lord, we will be people of prayer. I ask that those who do not know you, who are hearing this simple truth about trusting in you and being forgiven and having this future glory, Lord, I pray that they will be forgiven. I pray that they will be changed. I ask that they will seek you. So, Father, I thank you for Sheridan Hills, and Lord, I pray that you continue to keep this church united in the gospel message, and we look forward to that day when you call us home. In your name we pray. Amen. Friends, we're about to sing.